Okay, well, good afternoon, everyone. Good to see you all again. Uh, we're going to be uh, looking at Galatians chapter, uh, the end of chapter 5 and into chapter 6 this morning. If you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Very end of chapter 5, beginning of chapter 6. And as you're doing that, let me uh, pray for our time together here. Lord, we are so thankful for the gift of your word that brings life. But when we are dried out, weary, exhausted, thirsty, hungry, Lord, your word sustains us and strengthens us and helps us to persevere. And I pray this morning, this afternoon, that you would help our hearts and minds to be open to hearing from you, that your word would speak directly to each and every one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, my uh, in-laws, Kari's parents, are in the process of trying to sell their house right now. Part of the process of selling a house is getting it uh, ready, right? Is staging the property, making it look perfect. So basically removing any essence of yourself from the house to make it sort of as neutral and perfect looking as possible. So sort of like a magazine. But they don't want it to look totally sterile, right? So, you know, they'll have a few... This isn't their house. It's just a photo. But, you know, like... They'll put a plant in there or like a bowl of fruit or something. And I remember last year when we were looking at homes, we would go to these houses and they all kind of look perfect like this. And, and it's always easy to spot the fake bowl of fruit because it looks perfect, right? I mean, at our house, the bananas are always going like brown on the edges and the oranges never quite look the way they do in the store. And, and the apples always seem to end up with bruises on them. But prospective buyers, they don't want to see any of that. They want perfection. They want the ideal. And so that's what they get. And I think sometimes when we walk into the church and we talk about, about the fruit of the Holy Spirit, that's what we talked about a few weeks ago, right? The fruit of the Holy Spirit, it can be in a similar manner, sort of devoid of all the day-to-day realities of life. <laughs> Let there be light. That's a different passage, but that works. Um, right, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. We, we paint that in beautiful calligraphy on the walls of our homes, right? Looking pristine and, and beautiful and perfect. But how many times in your own life have you sensed a disconnect between what's plastered on your wall, what you aspire to be true in your home, and the reality of what you actually experience in the relationships in your house. That kind of reality is what Paul is aware of in his own life. It's what he encounters daily in the churches he's planted. It's what he knows is happening in the various congregations meeting in this province of Galatia. You see, Paul is a realist. He's intensely real. He knows how to cast a grand vision, but he also knows full well the messy realities of church. And that's what we're going to read about today, right? 
Messy people. <laughs> Messy churches. That's the real world that we live in. It's like when our dogs come in for playing in the backyard when it's been raining and they leave this trail of muddy footprints all across the kitchen. And, and we're not literally traipsing mud and dirt into our churches. Hopefully not. We're renting here. They'll be mad at us. But, but sort of metaphorically, we bring our brokenness and our imperfections and our sin and our mess everywhere we go. The question is, now what? How do we hold all this together if we're all such broken, messy people? Well, as we look at our passage today in Galatians 6, I think we're going to see three keys to living in a spirit-driven community together. The first is this. Restore the sinner. Look with me at uh, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. You know, a few, week, uh, a few years ago now, we were doing some spring cleaning in our home and we discovered a patch of mold growing in amongst some photo albums. We have this bookshelf behind a couch. It's sort of an area we never really look. And we, we pull the bookshelf back. We're doing a deep clean. And we see this huge patch of mold growing there. And we're pulling off more books and the mold patch is getting bigger. We had a huge problem on our hands. It turned out that behind that wall was a bathroom and there was a pinhole leak in the, uh, in the shower, in, in the pipe going up to the shower head. And so every time you turn the shower on, this would spray water in, in the wall cavity. I have no idea how long this was going on for, but it soaked the drywall and made all this uh, mold grow on the wall. So what did we do? We burned the whole house down and started from scratch. No, I'm just kidding. We didn't do that. Um, Our landlord actually is here, so that would have been bad. Um, We didn't do that. We called in Service Master, right? Because these guys are experts in the restoration process, right? Fire, flood, mold, rodents, raccoons, whatever it is, they will come in and they will restore the mess to make it as good as it was before. Maybe sometimes even better than it was before. So in our case, they sealed up the room, they cleansed all the surfaces, they removed all the drywall, Uh, we had a plumber come in, they fixed the leak, contractor, new drywall, paint, everything. It looks amazing, brand new. Things fall apart in this world, which means this side of heaven, we're going to constantly be in the process of putting things back together again. We're willing to vote all kinds of time and money and effort and attention to restoring things that are broken in our homes, to restoring things that are breaking down in our own bodies. How much more so should we be concerned with restoring our brothers and sisters in Christ when they fall into sin? Men and women created in the image of God, just like you and me. Now, Paul doesn't specify what kind of sin he has in mind here. and Honestly, it doesn't really matter. The point is that sin happens. Now, we may no longer be 
sort of capital S sinners, right? But we're still lowercase s sinners. In other words, your, your core identity, who you are, is no longer sinner in the sense of wicked, reprobate, separated from God for all eternity, trapped in slavery to sin, right? That's, if you're in Christ, that's no longer you. In Christ, you have now been sealed with the Holy Spirit. You've been set free. Go back over the previous chapters of Galatians. This is what Paul's been emphasizing to them over and over again. No longer slaves. Permanently changed. Sons and daughters. And in Christ, you too are no longer a slave, but a son or daughter. But as you probably already know, because you experience this daily, you're still a sinner, lowercase s, meaning you are constantly in a state of, of tripping up and making all kinds of mistakes in your life. You're someone who stumbles and falls, who is imperfect, who has to do daily battle with the flesh. Someone who still stretches the truth or battles lust, or greed, or pride, or anger. Someone who fails God, who fails others. I want to emphasize again, none of that changes your status in the eyes of God, right? In Christ, you are still a son or daughter, even when you sin. Just like in your own family, kids, when... when, your parents discipline you. They're not throwing you out of the family, right? You're still a member of the family. And if you've trusted Jesus, the same is true for you spiritually. Wicked sinner. That's not your primary identity anymore. It's beloved child of God. But... Sin is nevertheless something that must be fought against. It must be rooted out, exposed, confessed, repented of, cleansed. In our home, we couldn't just let all that mold keep growing. Like, oh well, that's too bad. We had to stop everything and take all the necessary steps to cleanse that room of the mold before it spread any further. And Paul says the same is true whenever sin pops up in our communities, with the goal always being restoration, not retribution. Right? The, the, goal, the, the aim is, is rebuilding, not belittling, tearing down, berating. Which sounds great until we have to do it, right? How do we go about doing that? Well, first, Paul says we're to do this through the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you remember Pastor Michael's excellent sermon from two weeks ago with the, 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 the little Lego dude on, on the, the train set here? Remember that? He was talking about how we need to keep in step with the Holy Spirit. Look, the Holy Spirit's role in your life, it, it, it's not just for your personal growth and development. I mean, it is that, but but it's not just for that. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is not just for your personal benefit and your personal blessing. The Holy Spirit is also the means that God uses to hold this rickety ship together. This thing called church. 
warts and all, all its imperfections, bound together through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the glue that binds us all together and gives us the strength, the, the, the capacity, the desire, the willingness, the ability to step into these messes, to take the time and energy and effort to restore those who have fallen among us, even when the people around us are driving us crazy. When Paul says, you who are spiritual, he's not talking to, hey, pastors, or, or hey, missionaries, or hey, prayer warriors. He's talking to everyone. You're all spiritual people in Christ. You have the Holy Spirit. That's what he's talking about here. Every single person in the church who calls himself a follower of Jesus is in this category of you who are spiritual. And why does this matter? Because sin is going to make a mess. Even the smallest unintentional sins. There's no way around it. So we pray for the Spirit to help us to be patient. We pray for the Spirit to help us uh, to have the strength to extend grace even when we're so irritated with someone else. We rely on the Spirit to help us be both firm and loving as we confront sin and call people to repentance. Which leads to the second way we restore people. As Paul says in verse 1, here he says, with gentleness, in a spirit of gentleness. A couple of weeks ago, I was trying to change lanes on the highway, and I, I didn't see a car in my blind spot, and all I know is this, this guy was, was like, uh, 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 like this horn blaring in my ear, totally jumped out of my seat, swerved back in my lane. And sometimes when we're dealing with sin in the lives of other people, our knee-jerk reaction can be to just like lay on that horn. Right? Like, there's this sort of righteous anger. <laughs> there's this righteous anger that wells up within us. Like, I cannot believe you would do that. And then, you know, when I cut that guy off, he was not wrong to do that. It was dangerous what I did. And I needed to get back in my lane. Paul has no problem calling out sin, calling for dramatic, direct intervention in the lives of people who are living in flagrant sin. And we do that. But the restoration process is meant to be done in a spirit of gentleness, with patience. We don't berate people into spiritual growth and, and change. Look, Rob, Pastor Rob's always saying, the goal of discipline, like in your kids, the goal of discipline is discipleship, right? Growth. It's about helping people become more like Jesus. But here's the thing. Yelling and screaming is not one of the tools in the discipleship toolbox. It's not in there. Like it may feel good for a moment, but you will never help somebody grow as a follower of Jesus through anger, through berating people, through yelling at them. 
It just doesn't work like that. In the end, what this really comes down to is this. Do you have the eyes to see this other person, this other person who sinned in some way in front of you? Do you have the eyes to see this person in front of you as God sees them? Broken, messy, but nevertheless still a child of the King. Can you look past all that dirt and grime, all that filth, to see the image of God hidden underneath? Are you willing to see the incredible potential that's still there? That God wants to reach? The truth that no one is beyond hope? Or do you only see a hindrance to your perfect, ordered life? A trail of dirty footprints messing up your perfect floor. You, each and every one of you, you who are spiritual, restore the sinner in a spirit of gentleness. So the first way to build Christian community in a broken world is to restore the sinner gently. But the second is this, to bear each other's burdens. And it comes from verse 2, where we read, Paul says, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now coming on the heels of verse 1, and Paul's comments about sin, this verse is first and foremost a reminder of the, the heavy weight that sin can play in our lives. As we've talked about in previous sermons, our sinful nature is constantly at war with the spirit within us. It's a battle, right? And that war can be a heavy burden that we carry around with us on a daily basis, dragging us down. Sin, dragging us down like this. Okay, well maybe, I don't want to rag on cats too much. They're, that's, they're not the sinful ones. More like this. Heavy weight of sin in our lives. I can't counsel so many people over the years who are just exhausted from carrying around these heavy weights the whole time. Lust, anger, temptation, greed, selfishness, the need for control, the pursuit of money or power. Fighting these spiritual battles can feel like you're just slogging your way through thick, unyielding mud. Especially since most of the time we feel like we can't even share what's really going on in our lives. That we have to press on alone. But God calls us to live and act differently as the people of God. If we can put verse 1 into action, restoring each other gently, then that begins to create the kind of culture where we feel we really can share the sins, the battles that we're fighting against without fear of being ridiculed, of being shamed. Where we really can be open and honest with each other. Where we really can support and encourage each other. But it's more than just helping each other battle sin. We live in a broken, messy world, like I said, and we need to help each other in so many other areas of life. Bearing each other's burdens means far more than simply saying, hey, I'll pray for you. I mean, that's good. 
Definitely. We need more prayer. But it's a willingness to enter into their life and genuinely help them to carry it. To support them through the battle. Through the fear, the anxiety, the doubt, the worry. It means you're probably going to get messy. Have you ever helped someone move house before? Yeah? I mean, you're literally carrying their burdens around with them. (laughs) And it's hot, and it's sweaty, and it's exhausting, and at the end of the day, you wonder, how in the world did I get talked into doing this? It's the same thing. Spiritually speaking, the same exact thing is true. You need to be willing to sort of enslave yourself to this other person. To lay down your life for them as Christ sacrificed His life for you. To give up your time or your money or, or comfort in order to help someone else in need. And we do that, again, through the power of the Holy Spirit who equips us to do what we otherwise would be powerless to do in our own strengths. You know, eight years ago, uh, Kari had ankle surgery. So three sports in high school, two sports in college, endless twisted ankles. Eventually that catches up to you and she needed one ankle to be fully repaired. So the surgery was a great success. The recovery was quite a significant challenge. It's a major surgery and the recovery was difficult. At the time our kids were about 10, 8, 6, and 2, something like that. So we're like right in the thick of everything with our kids. And it was amazing because we had all these brothers and sisters in Christ, people from our church, bringing us over meals, taking the kids out to the park. One woman uh, came over and and did laundry for us. Another person came over and cleaned the house. They said, I'll clean the house for you. And we're like, oh yeah, sure, you know. She came over, spent the whole day, cleaned the whole house while we're in there, and then made us a meal on top of it. It was amazing. Getting through that season was incredibly difficult, but we were able to do it because these other people were in our life. They had our backs. They shared that burden with us in very practical, real, tangible ways. I know many of you have experienced similar things here at GFC. I love this about our church, that we are a community that cares for each other. Driving people places, helping with meals, fixing things, restoring things. But it's not always just physical needs that need help carrying. Uh, A few years back, some friends of ours were going through an extended period of infertility. They were desperate to have kids, and it seemed like they couldn't do that. And Kari, you know, I've shared before, she's had five miscarriages, and So we had at least some sense of what they were going through. It wasn't entirely the same, but it was similar. There was nothing that we could do to fix this for them. But we were able to sit with them and to pray with them and to talk with them and to spend time with them and to encourage them and to pray with them. Honestly, a lot of the time it was just listening to them. And as God gave us opportunity to periodically Point them back to God. Point them back to the promises of Scripture. Reminding them of the truths they already knew, but just needed to be encouraged by. 
It's just 2 Corinthians chapter 1, in action, right? Comforting others with the comfort that we ourselves have received. Because sometimes God uses our suffering and pain and struggle to help us love and care for others far more than we ever could otherwise. And when we do all these things, when we live in this kind of community with each other, Paul says, we'll fulfill the law of Christ. But what does that mean? Well, the nearest context, I think, uh, that might help us understand it is in uh, just up a little bit in in chapter 5, where we read, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Given the focus here on restoring the sinner and carrying each other's burdens, Paul seems to be making a reference to Jesus' command to love your neighbor as yourself. Not as some kind of rigid, um, a new legal requirement, but as a reflection of God's character. Right? We're meant to reflect God's character in the world. Jesus himself came not to be served, but to serve. He came to die on behalf of sinners who didn't know him or love him or value him. And we too are called to live a profoundly others-centric kind of life. And that starts at a very young age. Kids, listen up. Have you ever thought about how or, or, or why God gave you brothers and sisters? I mean, aside from being there to sort of irritate you or mess with your stuff or whatever it is, might it not be because you actually need each other? I mean, what burdens are they carrying that you might be able to help them bear? How can you be praying for your brothers and your sisters at home? That's a very concrete step you can take even tonight. Bearing each other's burdens. You can fulfill the law of Christ right now at home, however young you may be, simply by looking for ways to love and care for your siblings. And it's exciting to think about the fruit that God might bring about from that as a result. Now, so far today, we've talked a lot about other people, right? Restoring the sinner, bearing each other's burdens. But there's a third piece of the puzzle Paul addresses here in talking about the challenges of living in Christian community. And that's keeping a close watch on yourself. Keeping a close watch on yourself. What do I mean by that? Well, look at the text again. This whole section, it really begins back in chapter 5, at the very end of chapter 5. Because the call to, to Christian community is rooted in the call to walk in step with the Holy Spirit. And so we see at the end of chapter 5, Paul warns, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And then he continues in verse 1. right? 
if anyone's caught in any sin, you should restore him. And then he says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And then again, a few verses later, for if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone, and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. When it comes right down to it, it turns out that I am the biggest threat to a healthy, vibrant, Christian community. And you are too. The word conceited in verse 26 means vain and proud, puffed up with an exaggerated sense of of self-importance and value. Pride is like like the the roundup uh, for relationships. It it attacks the roots and it kills from the inside out. Thriving communities are built on self-sacrifice. But pride will stop all that dead in its tracks. I think this is a train of thought behind Paul's warning in verse 1. I always used to read this verse as meaning... But be careful when we're storing someone who's in sin because you might fall into that same sin. But that's not actually what Paul says. His warning is against the pride that would say, well, well such a thing would that, would... that would never happen to me. I'm, I'm much better than that person. I'm immune to this kind of sin and temptation. When I put it like that, it sounds ridiculous, Right? Like, what kind of arrogant person would ever think that way? Well, I think we do. And more often than we care to admit. We obsess over the speck in our neighbor's eye while overlooking the log in our own. We criticize and judge the sins and failures we see in our spouses or in our children or in our friends or in the other people at church or in our parents or grandparents but all the time are quick to dismiss our own sins and failures as sort of quirks of our personality or, well, this is just the way that God made me. You know, our friends at school or at church, they're the ones with the real problems, not, not me. I am always right, and they, whoever that they is, they are wrong. But true love for others begins with a clear understanding of who we are ourselves. Who does Jesus command on the Sermon of the Mount? Right, he says, blessed, blessed are those who are proud, self-righteous, those convinced they know better than everyone else, those who have it all together and would never, ever, ever find themselves trapped in sin. No. Jesus commands those who are poor in spirit. In other words, those who recognize they bring nothing to the table. Those who take an honest look at themselves in the mirror and realize, yeah, you know what, I'm prone to make all the same kinds of mistakes as that that other person. Maybe not the exact same same sin, but equally prone to sin. My sins are maybe just more refined less obvious. I've gotten better at hiding them. They're less noticeable to other people. But God is clear they are every bit still as damaging. 
And this is Paul's point in verse 3. We deceive ourselves if we think we are stronger, better, or holier than those around us. That, that we have a lock on truth. That we have everything figured out and we're just waiting for everyone else to catch up. Why? Well, look at verses 4 and 5. Paul says, But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Look, the point of comparison is not my neighbor. It's God. If your reason for boasting is in your neighbor, then you're using the wrong measuring stick for your life. Maybe some of you have seen this, uh, this optical illusion before, right? Which square is darker? Is it A or B? A? Well, it's actually, it's, it's, it's an optical illusion <laughs> because the real answer is they are both the same color. They, I didn't alter this image. You can look this up afterwards. I'll show you on my computer. It's the, it's the same color. And it works because we have a problem perceiving three-dimensional images and, and all this. And our brain is trained to be used to seeing this alternating pattern of white and gray squares. So even though I've told you they're the same color, you still see them as being different. And in a similar way, Paul says, we should be wary of thinking that we're different from those around us. Even when it seems like it's true. Because you will always be able to find someone who's doing worse than you. But so what? Right? The point of comparison is not the other person. It's God. And before the Holy One of Israel, we all fall woefully, painfully short. We're all that same shade of gray. But the clincher here is in verse 5. Each person will have to bear their own load. Now, on the one hand, this may sound confusing, right? Well, what happened to bearing each other's burdens? Are we bearing each other's burdens or are we bearing our own load? I think Paul is talking about two very different scenarios. In verse 2, Paul's talking about caring for each other in Christian community, like we've been talking about. But here the focus shifts towards watching out for ourselves, our own hearts. Because in the end, on the final day, we will all be responsible for how we have lived before God. In this sense, we're responsible for carrying our own load. Your faith is yours. You need to own it. You can't coast along as part of a Christian family. You need to trust Jesus for yourself. You need to be praying yourself, not just relying on the prayers of other people. You need to be reading the Bible for yourself, not just relying on the insights of other people. You need to be serving yourself, not simply letting other people do all the serving for you. If you've ever watched any racing events, NASCAR or, or, or cycle, you know, um, the Tour de France, or even running, you're familiar with this idea of drafting, right? Or, or, or getting in the slipstream behind someone. So you can go faster. But what works with the race cars doesn't work when it comes to living life as a Christian. 
You can't ride someone else's coattails into glory. It's your race to run. We can spur each other on. We can support each other and encourage each other and carry each other's burdens and on and on. But at some point, you have to put a stake in the ground and say, this is mine. I'm owning this. Now, wrapping all this up, it's possible that over the last few weeks you've been listening to all this fruit of the Spirit and walking in step with the Spirit and this need to like care for each other in community and bear each other's burdens. And you've realized perhaps how hard this really is to do. Perhaps you're painfully aware of the many ways in which you've fall, fallen short or failed in your own relationships, in your marriage, your family, your friends, with your brothers, with your sisters. It's a struggle, right? It goes all the way back to the dawn of time. Cain and Abel, right? Am I I my brother's keeper? Cain was sent away for his sin. And when we really blow it, we sometimes feel like, well, maybe we should be sent away also. And in a sense, we should. But for God's intervention in our lives. You see, the gospel is a reminder that yes, you do blow it regularly. But that's not the end of the story. Failure is not your true identity. In Christ, you are now a child of God, loved by the King. Your debts have been paid. You've been set free from the burden of sin. So when you fail to restore others with gentleness, when you fail to bear each other's burdens, when you fail to display humility and sacrifice, don't give up. Don't give up. Don't let Satan use that against you. Instead, turn to God. Seek His forgiveness. Lean on the power of His Spirit to to guide you and lead you and help you to do what you have not been able to do in your own strength. Pray for the opportunity to do it over again. The Apostle John would later say, We love because He first loved us. He loved us as rebels, right? Sinners, hopelessly lost in our mess. And He loves us today as sinners walking by the power of the Spirit trying to put into practice all these things He's taught us to do. It's challenging work but He will see us through it to the end. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are so thankful for Your Spirit who equips us to live in community together as broken brothers and sisters in Christ, your spirit who binds this rickety ship together, who holds us together as one body, even when sin is pushing us apart. Lord, we thank you for the grace that you show us daily in our many, many failures. And we pray for strength to live for you this week in Jesus' name. Amen.